So good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to see you all. So we have our third and our last class today. But before we jump into uh, the topics of today, which will be the theme for today is awakening is available for everyone. This idea that we don't all have to look like the ideal or have a life that seems like we imagine that um, the awakened people had. And so we'll explore that from a few different uh, perspectives today. But, and maybe I'll say also along those lines, not only does our life not to need to unfold imperfectly the way that we imagine that uh, an awakened person's life unfolds, but also that, um, can I use this Beatles song? We get by with a little help from our friends, something like that, like how uh, people... Uh, help each other that definitely we practice together but before we go there just like to check in about uh if you have any questions or comments last week david shared some poems that are about had some um where all the practitioners had difficulties and then their life kind of made this uh pivot made this turn towards uh awakening and then Kim uh, shared a longer poem, Godita, about uh, somebody who chose a different life, different, uh, per- different pressures than what was uh, societal pressures and what were being put on him. So does anybody have any comments or questions? Feel free to raise your Zoom hand or your your physical hand. Yes, uh, Randy. I have a quick question. Um, are these poets and monks and nuns um, supposedly, or do we have the understanding that they were in direct contact with the Buddha? Well, so this is a good question. And what I'm going to share today, we talk, uh, we'll see where some nuns are talk, uh, have talking to another nun. And, and I'll unpack this some more, but maybe one more thing I'll say is, um, and in one of the poems that I shared on the first day, it's, they're written in such that an off screen, so to speak, person is speaking to the monk or nun. And we, it's, we can assume that it was the Buddha and certainly the later tradition holds that it was the Buddha, but it doesn't explicitly say it's the Buddha who was saying this. So that's an assumption we're making, um, but we don't actually know. Two things come up around that question, Randy, that I think you know are, are of good sort of good general importance. The, the two poems I'll be talking about in just a minute both imply direct connection and, and relationship between the, the the people writing the poems and the Buddha. And yet all of these have, uh, a lot of these have sort of a theatrical element almost, where the, the reciting of them would have had a sort of performative ritual devotional aspect as well, as Diana has implied. So they work on a lot of different levels at the same time. And maybe I'll add... Um... I had mentioned there's different ways that awakening gets expressed. And one of them is the Buddha's instructions have been done. 
So kind of like I did what the teachings were. So that also suggests that. I don't know if Ying or Kim, if either of you have any comments. Yeah, maybe I'll just add that um, the first poem we shared in this course, Patichara, is known to be one of the foremost uh, teachers, uh, female teachers. And so you see the references in some of the poems where they would mention um, Patichara uh, taught them, uh, especially the nouns, yeah. Thank you, Ying. And I'll talk a little bit about that later this morning. Yeah, are there any other questions or comments? Yes, Deborah. So I'm curious um, in two ways. I was thinking about um, our practice and this you know, path of awakening that all of us are, are on in our ways. And I went back and read the description um, for our gatherings and uh, inspiration and insight were the, the two key words for me. So it's sort of a double question. Part of my inquiry to myself is, so how does this, how do I sit with this, you know, reading them aloud and the different things you suggested, but what is there that, that you know, is there any shifting going on? Is there, um, one could say the inspiration is, you know, these various people who have awakened and um, there seemed to have been a great deal of struggle for the most part to get there. And I think they were all nuns, I believe, um, perhaps some householders. So that's one thing, you know, as an everyday person for all of us sitting with this to be able to bring it into our practice um, for inspiration and insight. And then the other side of that is have any of you wise or wise ones experienced something directly from these poems? Do any of my teachers inspire us? Yeah. Do any of my co-teachers want to uh, talk about this? Or maybe we could ask you, Deborah. so you're asking us, so to see if we have had insight or inspiration so that just, just some, so that others might also, is that? Well, it's twofold. I'm, I'm taking responsibility for myself and looking at it. You know, I look at the notes and I look at your suggestions and how does this, how is this going to support insight and inspiration in my practice? And then the other part was for the four of you, what, what have you experienced um, in practicing with these poems? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I see Ying leaning towards the unmute button. Great. Yeah, so my heartfelt sense is that if um, the teachings haven't touched us deeply inside of us, it would be hard for four of us to offer this kind of teachings um, because they can be difficult to uh, intellectually analyze and debate. Um, 
we don't know how, what they experienced um, directly, but there is some sense that all of us can touch in, in our deep sense of a being that, oh, there's something these poems are pointing to that touches us, that maybe resonate in, in us in some way. And so maybe that's what I would say. Maybe uh, I will add that the reason why we chose this theme is because I think, I don't know if this is the ninth or the 10th class that we've taught together. And we had this idea, you know, we're just the four of us, we tend to be a little bit more analytical, a little bit more, um, I'll just use that word analytical. And so um, we said, let's do something that speaks to us. That's a little bit different. That's we ourselves have found to be inspiring and touching so we wanted to uh, approach this class a little bit differently just from our own experiences and maybe i'll take off there to sort of launch the first um the first teaching uh part of the day of the class but i'll start with the response to deborah's question um i think one of the reasons uh that maybe it's a little hard to answer the second part of your question uh, is that the, the poetry, like music, as it's been said of music, expresses things that must be said, but can't be said in conventional prose. Um, these things point to things that in a way the awakening experience is beyond language. And one of the reasons that poetry is particularly, I think, powerful in doing this is the way it works with language. So I would just echo what Ying said. Yeah, I think for each of us, and I'll try to illustrate that now with your question as I talk about some of this, this theme of awakening being available to all, sort of how, how these poems have touched, touched me, um, both on the insight and the inspiration side. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm going to share a screen. Well, let me think here how to do this. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, two aspects of this idea that awakening is available to everyone, to all of us. I like saying all of us instead of everyone, because we're, we're included in this dispensation of uh, anyone, all those who can become awakened. It includes us to this group of 23 sitting here practicing together. This group of Kalyanamita, a theme we'll meet later in the day of spiritual friends or companions on the path. I'm trying to speak as loud as I can. I have asthma and it's smoky where I am. So I'll do my best. <clears throat> I may clear my throat from time to time. Um, so first I wanted to talk about the case of, and I'm going to share a screen, of a uh, practitioner known to us as Lakunta Baidia. Lakunta Baidia. Sometimes you see this name separated. And this is, this is a person named Badia who was a dwarf. Lakuntika means dwarf. And here's his poem, which I'm going to read. I, I think I'll later ask somebody to read a, a particular stanza. But we have um, Lakuntika Badia's story going like this, his poem. Badia, that is, this, this practitioner, has plucked out craving, root and all. And in a jungle thicket on the far side of the Amagdeka Park, he practices jhana. He is truly well-favored. 
Some delight in drums and lutes and in cymbals, but here at the foot of a tree, I delight in the Buddha's teaching. If the Buddha were to grant me one wish and I were to get what I wished for, I've left that at the bottom of the page because as I read this, I thought he's a dwarf. He's going to wish for full height to be like everybody else. But he says, if the Buddha were to grant me one wish and I were to get what I wished for, I choose that the whole world be always mindful of the body. As I read this, Deborah, even today, I'm filled almost with tears. To me, this is just very sweet, very powerful. Couldn't maybe tell you why in words, but it definitely moves me and moves my practice. Those who've judged me by my appearance and those who followed me because of my voice, they're under the sway of desire and lust. They don't really know me. It's not clear whether this particular practitioner had a beautiful voice or whether in a world which was dominated in a way we have a hard time imagining by darkness, no no artificial light beyond the flickering lamp oil lights in the the night. Um, Not knowing what's inside, not seeing what's outside, the fool obstructed all around is carried away by my voice. Not knowing what's inside, but discerning what's outside They too, seeing only the external fruits of practice, are carried away by my voice. Understanding what's inside and discerning what's outside, they, seeing without obstacles, are not carried away by my voice. So a very powerful little poem about difference and how, um, in this case, um, a practitioner struggles with being different in the community. And... In seeing more clearly uh, with his awakening also is, um, I think, has a lot of clarity around how people perceive him and knows, in a sense, his true friends by knowing those and sticking close, I think, to those who understand what's inside and aren't carried away by what they see of him, not carried away either by his beautiful voice or by his unatypical stature. We learn more about um, Lakundika Baidia in a couple other things. And there's a discourse in Samyutta Nikaya 21.6 that talks about this same character. And I love this. And it ends with a stanza. So I'm including it in our discussion of poetry. Um, it says at Sabati, a familiar location in the, in the suttas, then the venerable Lakunta Kabadiya approached the Blessed One. The Blessed One, the Buddha, saw him coming in the distance and addressed the practitioners around him, the bhikkhus, the monks, in this way. Bhikkhus, do you see that bhikkhu coming? Ugly, unsightly, deformed, despised? Yes, venerable sir. That bhikkhu, Lakunta Kabadiya, is of great spiritual power and might. It is not easy to find an attainment which this bhikkhu has not already attained. And he is one who, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge in this very life, enters and dwells in the unsurpassed goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the household life, from, home, from the home life into homelessness. This is what the Buddha said. And then the Buddha captures this, and maybe this gets back again to Deborah's question. Here's a prose description of it, but here's how the Buddha captures it in um, an exclamation in verse. 
And I wonder whether somebody would volunteer to read this. I can't see everybody's pictures. If Would somebody just unmute and read these two stanzas for us? Somebody feeling feeling their voice this morning? Somebody in good voice? All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. Thank you, thank you. Geese, herons, and peacocks, elephants and spotted deer, all are frightened of the lion regardless of their body size. In the same way among human beings, the small one endowed with wisdom, he is the one that is truly great, not the fool with a well-built body. I love this a little couple of stanzas, particularly that last couplet. He is the one that is truly great, not the fool with the well-built body. So there's a lot going on here, <clears throat> but the Buddha in his own voice is here giving support to a practitioner who is comes to the community different from, from others. This theme here that one who is truly great one who is truly great in the Buddha's practice, that the greatness in the practice isn't determined by how we're born. It's not determined by the physical body we're born into, nor is it determined by the social status that we, that we acquire at birth. And the next poem I want to share is one that You think, do I have enough time? Yes, there's one more thing about Badia that I'll say, Badia the dwarf. We have another couple references to him and another couple exclamations of the Buddha that capture really important things. I just wanted to notice, and I think, again, maybe it's related to Deborah's uh, nice question that launched us here today, just that we can see echoes with things we dis- we talked about. Tuesday, Deborah, I mean, uh, Diana said last week, it was actually just two days ago, it may seem like last week, but on Tuesday, um, we talked about ways that awakening appears, and this also came up uh, Saturday. And here, um, the the particular awakening experience that Lakuntika Badia seemed to um, be talking about, or seemed to have experienced, is this one of not... um, not finding um, self in the five aggregates, a theme which was repeated. And again, in these poems, these sorts of themes that, that we, we can see others awakening to the same sorts of seeing clearly that may be uh, familiar to us in our practices. So not only the well-favored, but also not only the privileged have access to awakening uh, in, the, in the Buddha's practice. And this is a, this is a really wonderful um, poem by a, a man, Sunita. And I'll sort of comment as we go, as, I, as I've been doing, but also try to hold some of the poetry as poetry. Sunita's poem says, I was born in a low class, we might say today, low caste family, poor, little to eat. My job was lowly. I threw out the old flowers, probably the old flowers <clears throat> in the graveyard, in the cemetery, um, and, you know, association with cemeteries then as now uh, has frequently fallen to lower class or lower caste um, people. Shunned by people, I was, disregard- I was disregarded and treated with contempt. I humbled my heart and paid my respects and bowed down to many people. This is important, the bowing down. We'll see why in a moment. So this is 
a person who is lowly in caste because of birth, who is in the, is in the habit of bowing to everyone. Everyone bows. Uh, he bows to everyone. Then I saw the Buddha, honored by the Sangha of monks, surrounded by his uh, followers, entering the capital, the capital of Magadha. Magadha. I dropped my carrying pole and approached to pay my respects, and out of compassion for me, the Buddha stood still. When I had paid my respects at his feet, I stood to one side and asked this most excellent of all beings for the going forth, that is, permission to become a follower, to be recognized as a monastic follower. The teacher, being sympathetic and having compassion for the whole world, said, come then, monk. And this was my full ordination. So nothing to achieve, nothing to have been proven. With the asking to become a follower, the Buddha says, come, come. And that's all that takes for this person to become equal to everyone else in the Buddha's um, community of practice. And then we hear something about his practice, staying alone in the wilderness without laziness, that is mindful. I did what the teacher said, right? Fulfilling the teacher's instructions, we, we know from other poems, as the conqueror, the Buddha, had advised me. And then <clears throat> we see an experience exactly like the Buddha's. In the first watch of the night, I recollected previous births. In the middle watch, I purified the divine eye. In the last watch of the night, I tore apart the mass of darkness. I let go of the defilements. At the end of the night, as the sunrise drew near, Indra and Brahma came and paid homage to me with hands and anjali. So a person who found himself humbled and bowing to everyone is now having the gods bow to him. And when the Buddha saw me honored by this assembly of gods, he smiled and said the following, by austerity and by living the holy life, by restraint and by taming the mind, by this one is a holy person. This is the supreme holiness. So we see here that somebody of humble birth, possibly somebody of what we would now think of as a, a lower caste birth, we find that in the Buddha's dispensation, birth doesn't determine um, our possibility of awakening. And as we learn from other teachings and other in the suttas, um, if not by birth, then by what? By action, by kama, by what we do and how we practice can we become also uh, free? And in that freedom, everyone's equal. And an interesting parallel, since I have a minute, is just to round out the other half of that. Both in the suffering we know, regardless of the, the kind, the forms it takes, and in the freedom that we can come to know, at the awakening that the Buddha describes is available to all of us. Kim. Okay. Thank you, David. So now we will meditate together. So let's take a little time to um, maybe take these poems in. So finding a, a posture for meditation Settling in. 
bringing the attention inward to the sense of the body sitting. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Maybe soften in the face. Softening the shoulders. Down through the belly. Really sensing into where you're sitting, your seat against the chair or the cushion or the bench. Your legs or feet against the floor. Or perhaps your whole body is lying against the surface, just sensing what supports you physically. And letting go into that, relaxing, letting yourself be upheld. Maybe on the next exhale, softening the body a bit more. Relaxing and letting all the air just naturally go out. Breathing in a bit more gently. Bringing to the mind an attitude of calm and friendly awareness. Really feeling how it is right now for you. How is the body? How is the mind? How is the heart? The sense of openness and kindness for this one, this one here. 
This body is just a human body. One body among all the possible ones. This one. In the sutta, the Buddha defines two kinds of beauty. One is the beauty of complexion, kind that is seen. And the other is sublime beauty. The second kind coming from one's spiritual depth. Spiritual beauty comes from letting go of the activities that bring suffering, whether outer behaviors or inner views. Sensing the beauty, the inner sublime beauty of one's heart and mind. Even if it's just a little wisp. Finding that place of Calmness or peace or love, it has so many faces. One Pali word for this sublime beauty is kalyana, spiritual beauty. Just resting in the sense of inner beauty, simply by doing this practice, we have brought something beautiful forth.
knowing that in yourself, touching that. The small one endowed with wisdom, he is the one that is truly great, not the fool with the well-built body. So resting in our real life body, just how it is, with the inner sublime beauty of the mind that is available to all. Sometimes we can sense this and sometimes we can't. And if that's the case today, then knowing also that even inclining toward beauty, even knowing that it's possible, is beautiful. And as David said about these poems, they express what wants to be expressed, but can't be expressed. And so perhaps touching this inner beauty we may want to express, but can't quite express. And so we try out a phrase like, May I find peace. 
May I be at ease. May I know true well-being. Touching into the heart. May all beings find peace. May all beings shine with sublime beauty. Thank you, Kim. Oh. I just want to take a moment to, to take in that silence and the beautiful guided meditation that Kim did and uh, the sharing that uh, David sh- uh, offered this morning. So we are going to transition into um, small groups uh, breakout room uh, for us to share some reflections based on what's being shared today. And this um, question and that will offer for you to reflect on um, is how do these poems inspire you? And this may come uh, in the form of words. Maybe you can get creative. Maybe it's a drawing. Um, You have a piece of paper that you like to draw out what might have inspired you and feel free. And so as both Kim and David um, were saying, there may be certain things are hard to put into words. So maybe there are different forms of expressions that come along. Maybe it's a silence. So the poems that we shared today um, represented individuals that are far from the ideal, idealized image of the Buddha. Uh, Kind of often we um, 
had an image of the Buddha being quite a magnificent, magnificent individual. And this is to talk about 32 marks and (laughs) um, radiance and all of that. And so, um, yet the poems uh, that we shared talked about individuals that are from lower classes uh, that maybe physically um, feels quite different. And uh, the dwarf uh, who had apparently ugly appearances. Um, and so they, they may have uh, gone through or faced tremendous barriers from a society, from culture, maybe even from the family. And maybe for them, um, and just, you know, for me feeling into their lives, maybe there are some deep internalized identifications they had to overcome uh, on the journey of awakening. Um, and yet, both of these individuals we shared today, Sunita and um, I can pronounce the other person's name, um, have uh, ended a craving once and for all. So, and those are being defined as the truly great. So, how might you be inspired by this? So, you will be getting into small groups. Um, and I invite you, if you need a moment to collect as a group, feel free to do that. And once, once you gather together and ready to share, maybe use your Zoom, Zoom names um, ordered by alphabetical order uh, to start. And um, if, if one is not ready, maybe share with the group and see if the next person would be ready to, uh, to start. And this is a sharing, learning from each other uh, kind of exercise. And so uh, um, maybe each person take uh, one point and then listen uh, to the next person and then circle back. So you have about um, 10 minutes. Yeah. So. um, Thank you. I think David uh, just put the question in the chat box. And here we go. Enjoy. All right. I think we're all back. Is that right? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so we are going to open this and invite some additional sharing, reflections, or questions um, at this time. And so, again, if you want to use Zoom Room or just raise your hand, I think, for those who are on the video. Okay, I see Jerry. Um, there's so much I could say, but I won't. I'll just have to pick one. Uh, 
Uh, it's just amazing how three words put together can have such a, 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 a deep and probably long lasting effect. It's just amazing to me. But uh, I, I'm picking this one. Uh, David, you and, and I, my, and my question sort of is, does it make a difference? And my, my guess is it probably doesn't. But I really resonate deeply to tore apart the, the mass of darkness. So you had suggested that that's, those are the defilements. And I intuitively, and it, I think that line shows up in two or three different poems, at least two of them. So, but to me, there was just, it's about my ignorance, which is about based on delusion. And, and because that's where I'm at in my practice. And to me, in the long run, maybe that, that saying it's the defilements or saying it's ignorance, which is one of the defilements, doesn't really make any difference. But I love that line. I can't explain why. Tearing apart the mass of darkness. And to me, on the other side of ignorance, to get through ignorance, you're turning up the light of wisdom. And so that destroys the darkness. I just find that beautiful. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing this. This is a pointing to what both Kim and David have been um, hinting or ex- being explicit that there are things that are expressed in the limited number of words um, that may be hard to put in the specific vocabulary on them. And so I can feel that you have a very deep, heartfelt resonance in this. Just trust that. Yeah, trust that. So thank you. Thank you for that uh, heartfelt sharing. Um, Michael. I'm continuing on this theme of these repeated elements, like tearing apart the mass of darkness. We were, we had a discussion in our group about, about these repeated tropes that appear, you know, so the, you know, three crooked things, you know, appear in multiple poems with the Terragata and Terragata, um, the, uh, uh, I, you know, I went to a nun and she taught me the sense fields, the, uh, the aggregates, the, you know, that's, that appears like in exactly the same words over and over. And so, um, it, it was interesting to think about these as little, you know, uh, presumably they were very inspirational to people. And so people were, you know, like one person, you, you know, one practitioner would hear that from someone. And then in the moment of their own awakening or inspired by their own awakening, um, want to like share this same inspirational thing they'd heard um, or maybe these little repeated things were solving certain problems of uh, meter and rhyme, you know, because coming up with meter and rhyme is hard. And so it's sort of like, oh, that's a great turn of phrase. And so I want to, you know, I want to use that too. You know, it's, it, it was just interesting to see these things kind of migrate around. I don't know if this poetry was um, orally transmitted before it was ever written down or if it was actually composed in written form, um, but thinking about the oral transmission and the sort of repeated little memory units. Um, was uh, So it was just, I, I you know, I, I was struck by seeing these little tropes. And then for some of the ones where they're actually describing the moment of awakening, 
um, they're repeating exactly what the Buddha described. You know, so in the first watch of the night, I gained the first knowledge, right? In the second watch of the night and that, and, um, you know, I, it struck me that you're hard pressed to find kind of a major religion where people in the religion basically say, and I achieved exactly the same thing as the founder. You know, in other religions, when you say I achieved the same thing as the founder, that, that like gets you killed, you know, <laughs> but, in, <laughs> but in Buddhism, that's like what you're, that, that's the point is that you can achieve exactly the same thing as the Buddha. Um, and so that to me, um, you know, at first I was a little unsure about how to relate to some of this word, like it felt a little like rote or whatever, but then, um, but then my understanding flipped and it's like, wait a minute, they're basically saying I achieved exactly the same thing as the Buddha, like in the Buddha's words, I did that. And it's like, wow, that's very, uh, intense. And so, um, just wanted to share that. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you. I just, I love that you're unpacking this in several different dimensions, right? And this understanding of uh, the recitation, maybe the oral transmission and the, the way poetry works and maybe some of the things that are common that are being taught, being repeated again, again. So it's very rich. I just want to kind of open it up and see if any of my co-teachers wanted to jump in and comment. Maybe I'll just add that, uh, noticing that some of the same phrases are in different poems, the later tradition that is like maybe 800 to 1,000 years after the Buddha, when they're looking back on this, they, um, they wrote down at that time um, that they were friends, that some of these people that have the same language were friends. And I, I kind of, exactly as you said, Michael, I, I like this idea that uh, being open to influence from others. And I would just add a point to another thing. Wonderful, um, wonderful contribution of, of Michael's there. It's a very powerful idea that we, all of us, you know, can experience what the Buddha experienced. And uh, I think the, the, the role of memory in that, and we might say of sati, right, of, of mindful attention to what's going on, is powerfully supported by um, the chanting practice and internalizing the instructions and internalizing the language of those instructions. And that certainly in a, in a time when these poems were memorized and passed on by chanting, uh, you know, would have been part of the daily practice of that, of that chanting and that function of memory. So anyway, just want to point that the, the connection again there between sati, memory and paying, keeping things in mind and experiencing what the Buddha experienced, you know, are, um, are uh, very, very close. Thank you. And I see uh, Aditi. Yeah, uh, thank you, Yang. Um, so one of the questions that came into my mind when I read all of these is, oh, do I have the knowledge that they have? Maybe like, you know, so, so my thought was, oh, you know what? Soon as I retire, I'm going to sit for seven days or, or maybe there's, there's like more methodical. So, so there was some self-doubt. Is, is that really true? Is, is what we are learning enough? 
Uh, first, I have to say, you know, when uh, you guys were in breakout room, four of us were in breakout room, we were resonating with the fact of how important it is to do some uh, residential retreats. <laughs> so, so if you have a thought like that, maybe, you know, do find opportunity. I think uh, for me right now, I'm in a retreat setting. Uh, just putting away a lot of things that we usually do um, is such a great simplification of body, mind, and heart. And there is a real impact of it. Um, so maybe that's what I would say for now. Yeah. So, um, David, this will be our last question before we turn to the next piece. Yeah. It's really not a question as much as a comment about the repetition. I found my I find myself when I read that feeling like the person's admitting that I came to the teacher seeking to acquire something somewhat selfishly, and that. What I learned was basically to unburden myself of that selfish aspect. And it was more like, and now I'm a part, you know, of the teacher's wisdom of this, you know, like the barrier has been broken. And so you know, in, in a way, I think it's a it's a beautiful expression of gratitude to the sangha. Yeah. So, anyway, that that's my comment. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Lovely said. So I'm gonna pass to Diana. Yes, and thank you. Uh, David's comment right then was uh, is a great segue into what I'd like to talk about now. And that often, or maybe it would be easy enough to imagine that this practice is a solitary affair. We've, and certainly we've been talking about individuals, nuns and monks, they have names, or imagining them as uh, people, perhaps similar are not so different than ourselves. And we talk about also, you know, the individuals uh, striving for enlightenment or working towards awakening and then becoming awakened. And certainly the Buddha is depicted as a solitary figure. So it would be easy to kind of think about or um, assume that this practice is all about the individual. But also, we know this, and we've talked about this a little bit, that Buddhism, of course, grew out of community and connection with uh, individuals. Certainly, at the time of the Buddha, that um, there was a monastic community and there were followers, and not everybody was near the Buddha all the time, but instead, they were hearing the teachings from each other. Of course, how else could it be? They don't have podcasts and books and, you know, all these resources that we have available now. So there was really a reliance on each other. And, and we do know that the Buddha also placed uh, immense importance on the company we keep. 
um, in there's one sentence that he says in the Angudaram, I do not see even a single thing that so causes wholesome qualities to arise as good friendship. And this word friendship is Kalyanamita. The, uh, Kim dropped in this word Kalyana as beauty. So Kalyanamita can be expressed uh, or translated in a number of different ways. And I love this. I love when there's different aspects and we can look at it um, from different points of view. So one is good spiritual friend, beautiful friend. The Kalyanamita, the Pali allows us to also say friend of the beautiful. So just in this kind of way, touching into like what is the beautiful Kim pointed us towards some of the beauty inside with practice. So now I would like to share a screen and to share a little, uh, some uh, poems that talk about this directly. So let's see here. Can I get a thumbs up if you can, if you can see uh, what I know you can't? Yes, now you can, okay. So this is um, Ananda, though he was the attendant of the Buddha. This is just one stance. He has a really long poem in the Taragata. Here's just one stance. If you want to understand the teachings, you should befriend this sort of person who is learned and has memorized the teachings, a wise disciple of the Buddha. And then we can see also in the next slide, we can see that... Um, Kisa Gotami, a nun, the opening of her poems, she recalls, she brings to mind what the Buddha had said. The sage looked at the world and said, with good friends, even a fool can be wise. Keep good company and wisdom grows. Those who keep good company can be freed from suffering. And then she goes, and the rest of her poem is about how she becomes freed from suffering. So going back to um, Ananda, the rest of his poem, he talks about the Buddha as being a friend. He uses this word friend. Those of you who are familiar with this Ananda story that after the death of the Buddha, Ananda was really distraught. Of course he was distraught. He had been the Buddha's companion for so long. And here's Ananda saying, as part of his awakening poem, he gives a little bit of like how his path unfolded. And you can imagine the death of the Buddha is set, had such a big impact on his life that it ends in his awakening poem. I'm completely disoriented. The teachings don't spring to mind. With the passing of our good friend, everything seems dark. And then maybe with a change of a perspective, when your friend has passed away, your teacher has passed and gone, there's no friend like mindfulness of the body. So this pivot, this turn in the midst of distress towards practice and mind, so mindfulness of the body. So many of us are familiar with this practice, you know, like the a mainstay of like, okay, what's actually happening here and now? <laughs> especially when we're getting overwhelmed or something. So 
also Randy asked about where did they have contact with the Buddha? And I said, that was what the um, tradition holds. That's an assumption. I'm a little bit embarrassed that uh, Ying brought it. Well, what about Padachara? She was a well-known teacher. And I'd like to say a little bit about Padachara. Um, we opened this class with that poem. David brought her in um, yesterday, and I'm going to bring her in a little bit today. Not her poems, but in her role as a teacher. And it's before I bring up the next slide, just to be reminded that coming from a society in which largely women were expected to be mothers or wives or maybe even courtesans, it's striking to discover women who were really respected for their spiritual attainments, really respected for their leadership skills and the, the uh, fact that they were awakened. Especially when we consider that there weren't, uh, there were few, if any, exemplars or precursors or certainly structures that allowed women to arise to the role of being a teacher. But we might also imagine that we know that um, the monastic communities are kept separate. The men are with the men and the women are with the women. So if we remember that, we might say, of course, there are going to be women who rise up to teach other women because they spend so much time together. It's one of the rules for the nuns are that they should not uh, be alone, just for their own safety at that time. So we might uh, imagine that there's a number of women who became teachers, but we know in, uh, about Padachara. So now with this next slide is... Uh, is Chanda, who is a nun, who is talking about Padachara being her teacher. I used to be in a sorry state as a childless widow, bereft of friends or relatives. I got neither food nor clothes. I took a bowl and a staff and went begging from family to family. For seven years, I wandered burned by heat and cold. Then I saw a nun receiving food and drink. Approaching her, I said, send me forth to homelessness. So maybe I'll pause here. Maybe what David Weisskopf said a little bit earlier about approaching a teacher wanting something. We might imagine the poor Chanda here is hungry, is starving maybe. And she sees, oh, the nuns receive food. Well, maybe I should just become a nun. We don't know what her intentions are. Maybe she just simply wanted some food. Then the poem continues. Out of compassion for me, Padachara gave me the going forth. That means uh, ordained her, allowed her to become a nun. Then having advised me, she urged me on to the ultimate goal. After hearing her words, it did her bidding. The lady's advice was not in vain. Master of the three knowledges, I am free of defilements. So here's the power of Chanda to become awakened and the power of Padachara to help her become awakened. So 
it's not only Padachara, or maybe it is, it's not quite clear. When we um, read some of these other poems, this one is by Anuttara, and she's describing another nun who helps her. In the 25 years since I went forth, I have not found peace of mind, even for as long as a finger snap. This idea, right? She had been a nun for a long time, but still it wasn't able to find a peace of mind. Failing to find peace of heart, corrupted by sensual desire, I cried with flailing arms as I entered a dwelling. I approached a nun in whom I had faith. She taught me the Dharma, the aggregates, sense fields, and elements. When I heard her teaching, I retired to a discreet place. I know my past lives, my clairvoyance is purifying. I comprehend the minds of others, my clairaudience is purified. I've realized the psychic powers and attained the ending of defilements. I've realized the six kinds of direct knowledge and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. Really powerful. So she is saying, you know, after so long of practicing, maybe there's a nun, not until maybe a nun that uh, really helps her along and maybe points her in where she was stuck or helping her see things she hadn't seen. And then she has these visionary experiences that are part of her awakening experience. And to be sure, throughout the suttas, there is some individuals do have these kind of visions, but not all of them. So they're not a prerequisite, they're not required, but here maybe uh, Anuttara shares with us her, her uh, maybe extreme or um, intense, or I'm not exactly sure what to use, magnificent maybe, her awakening. So in this way, pointing to how it's the individuals are practicing together and helping each other finding their way towards awakening. So maybe with that, I will uh, turn it over to Kim. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, we're approaching um, the end. So now is uh, another time for comments or questions. yeah, anything that's coming up based on today's teachings or on the course as a whole, now that you've soaked in these poems for almost a week. Alex. I just wanted to say that I get so much more out of um, talking and hearing about po- like the, the this kind of like poems like this in a group as opposed to just sitting and reading it myself, you know, um, just being part, part, part of a group like this, I'm kind of new to this and it's just really, really wonderful. So I just want to express that. 
Very much in line with Diana's theme of Kalyanamita. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Deborah. Well, I want to echo. Yeah, I want to echo that. Um, yeah, the cat really enjoys this. He totally, he totally relates to it. And I too, poetry is an art form. And I have found, even though I'm still fairly new to it, that when I hear um, different views and I, you know, I, people share their insights and whatnot, it's so enriching and it just opens it up so much more than, than what I get from my own um, singular view. And the other thing is, um, it would be lovely if this could continue in some way. I think there's the breakout rooms are wonderful, and there there's a real also there's a deepening I think with ongoing um, practitioners. You know, there's just not that you have to know each other uh, to be very open. This seems to really encourage people to be very present. At least the ones I was in. Um, but I would vote for a continuance in some way. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, yeah, we do intend to keep offering these classes from time to time. David will say a little bit about that in a moment. But um, thank you. A any other comments from the other teachers on anything so far? Yeah, no. maybe. No, I just want to point out that there is a chat message also. Oh. Um, you want to read the questions? Yes. Andy pointers to resources for hearing poems read in the original Pali language um, on the net or other bibliographic resources. Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's actually lovely to hear Polly. There is a site where you can hear various suttas read in Polly. I'm drawing a blank on the um, which one it is. It's it's something obvious like pollyreading.com or something like that. Uh, and but I the qualifier is I don't know if these poems are on there. But certainly there's a one where suttas read in Polly. There are recordings of them. Holly recordings, something like that. Diana, do you know this one? No, okay. I just heard about it recently. I think it's maybe a year old or so. Yeah, I know about it, but like you, I don't know the, I can't bring it to mind. Right. If we find something before we send out the final yeah. mail, we'll include we'll, it. We'll look for it. Thanks for asking. Karen. So I want to thank you all also. And I want to say, I know these people who wrote these poems. They feel like they're my sangha. And um, I feel this like sense of these are my friends and just the way the timelessness of them and the way they connect, um, connect me through centuries of time to now. And um, I just really appreciate that feeling of um, they are like me, they are like us, I am like them. And the breakout rooms, I hear people say things, there's poetry in the way we all speak. 
um, as we stumble our way into awakening and um, and the defilements. And so I just feel really grateful for expanding the conversation over time in this way. It's so heartful and and poetic. So thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. There is a timelessness um, to these poems and actually to all of the um, polycanon, to, to, to my heart at least. I consider it to be a link in the strand of living dharma um, throughout time. So thank you for putting that into such beautiful words. Bill, is your hand up? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, continuing on that theme, there's there's a saying, the past is a foreign country. I think what they're trying to get at is the culture was so different uh, situations were so different that um, you have to immerse yourself in past studies to really understand it. But no, in these polycanon suttas, um, uh, I, I find them easy to read and understand the people's concerns and their very way of thinking seems very familiar to me um uh, it's like you know get rid of the computers and automobiles and so forth and there's no difference that was my thought Mm. beautiful thank you Mm -hmm. maybe that's a nice place to shift onward to uh to david Yeah, we'd like to, you know, we're, we're c- close to our close and, uh, it's nice to hear these expressions of, um, of, uh, shared sort of gratitude for the teachings and also shared, um, shared sort of, um, friendship around the practice. So it's, 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 uh, it's a nice place to close. Right about now, we're sometimes struck by people's, um, expressions of gratitude and people sometimes ask how can we how can i support uh these offerings uh of the of the study and practice series and and the sati center we love the way that um our joy in sharing the teachings freely is met by you know sometimes this kind of upwelling of wanting to make this part of a shared practice too the offering freely of the teachings the offering freely of support we will include a link um, in the final email that goes out to a way to, that you can donate to the Sati Center to support teachings, to support teachers. And uh, it's also there on the Sati Center website. There's a little button you can push to donate. So should your practice uh, you know, move you toward generosity of spirit, um, we love giving these teachings freely, and we love that people meet that with you know, um, um, a generosity practice. When that, when that comes up. We want you to hold the dates for the next class. People have asked about that. <clears throat> and let me just bring up those dates. Yeah, November 13th, 16th, 18th, 20th. You don't have to remember this. 
keep an eye on the uh, Sati Center website. But mid-November 13, 16, 18, 20, we'll be doing another series that we've done before, Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And um, we're going to focus, we, we expect, we plan on wise speech. So more of a practice and maybe more of a practical focus than uh, some of the other classes we do. We're really looking forward to that um, and uh, continuing with you. And we expect lots of others uh, in that class. So I'm going to pass it to Ying for a final closing word. Yeah. Um, just very touched by uh, all the comments and sharing for the courses so far. So we'll take a moment to, to, to gather together as a community, as a uh, uh, Kalyanamitas uh, together, practicing together, sharing, reflecting, and learning the Dharma. I uh, love that in uh, my uh, Chinese Buddhism tradition, usually when we get together in this form, we're calling each other's uh, Dharma siblings, Dhamma sisters and Dhamma brothers, and then we're really a big family here, uh, sharing a long lineage uh, where we're a part of uh, a family that we share deep roots of. So may all the goodness and that um, bubble up through this course, through our gathering together, learning, reflecting, listening, and taking in into our heart and mind, our body deeply. May the goodness become a resources that support uh, your ongoing exploration on this Dharma path. And may the goodness become a resources for many you meet. And may they ripple out in all directions, touch all being. May all beings no peace. May all beings know freedom. Thank you all for being here. And you can unmute. Um, oh, I just saw a message from Deborah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll see you hopefully in November or when the next day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for the class. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Blessings. Take care.